All right. Well, welcome, everyone, to the 44th session of our Fireside Chat, with thanks to Oliver and Justin. Uh, last week, we left off with a few of you um, having more, some more questions. So we'll start with Titi from Sweden. And I think you had one question left last, last week, and you've got some for this week. So please go ahead. Okay, I will. Um, so, uh, first of all, thank you for last weekend in Krakow. It was so inspiring and uh, I was full of ideas when I came home. So I would really like to encourage you all to go and see Tom if you have the opportunity. Um, I have some questions from a teenager again. And they are all about creating your own reality. So someone told him that his thoughts creates his reality. And this has turned into a fear of creating bad things in his life. So I wonder if you would like to explain for him how it works and how to go about it. I have tried, but I didn't manage to explain it in a way that was helpful. So he could let that fear go. Okay, I'll I'll give it a shot. Maybe I'll be more successful. Hard to tell. Uh, you don't really create your own reality in the sense that you know your reality is 100% your creation. You only influence your reality, and you influence your reality in three ways. One way is by your interpretation. You interpretation the data you interpret the data that you see and your interpretation becomes your reality. That is why people who tend to be negative see a lot of negative things because they interpret their information more negatively. And why people who are positive see more positive things because that's their interpretation. So that's one way that you help create your reality. Okay. Another way is that the way you act and interact with other people. If you interact with other people in a very negative way, let's say you just use people. Your idea of a friendship is what can I get out of this person? You know, what, what, how can I use them to my own benefit? Well, if you feel that way about people, it'll change the way people react to you. People will not like you very much. People will want to stay away from you. Uh, People will know that uh, that uh, you're not a good person to be around. So that will modify your reality. So your own interactions, your attitudes modify your reality. Now, the last thing, which is probably the one that has him worried, is that you modify future probability with your intent. Now, the key word here is modify or influence. You don't force the world to give you whatever you think about. You just have an influence over it. Okay, now that influence can be weak. And for most people, most of the time, it's a very weak influence. And that is because in order to have a strong influence, you have to, you have to not operate from your intellectual level. You have to operate from your being level. And most people don't. They're just the opposite. Most people always operate from their intellectual level. They think their way through life. They don't be their way through life. They're not necessarily uh, um, entirely 
let's see, what's the word? Uh, authentic. They have image. They worry about what people think of them. It's not just being. They're playing a role. So if you if you are a nice person, if you have positive attitude, that will help. But in this last one, if you think from your intellect, if you have a lot of noise in your mind, in other words, you don't have a real good solid meditation state where you can let all the other thoughts go away, then you will still modify future probability with your intent, but only marginally. You'll be a very weak player as far as your ability to, to uh, modify what's going to happen. So people who practice and work at it and try to grow up and get rid of their fear are much stronger. People who have a lot of fear are much weaker. So the more fear you have, the weaker you are at this modification process. So people who are very fearful don't want to encourage a more fearful future. And fortunately, they won't because they'll be very weak in their encouragement. But that doesn't mean that they won't encourage a more negative future. But they will in an only a weak sense. It's not going to overwhelm them. It's not just going to create this horrible reality that they can imagine in their mind. That won't happen because they don't have the the power to do that because they are fearful. So those that's kind of a mutually exclusive thing there. So a very fearful person need not worry too much about his effect at modifying future probability because just naturally a very fearful person is not very capable of changing future probability. The people who are very good at it are the people who have grown up, gotten rid of their fear, gotten rid of their egos, gotten rid of their beliefs, live a very positive, caring, compassionate life, and they can uh, move a lot of probability. They have a lot more power to manifest things according to their uh, intent. So your young friend just shouldn't worry about it. Adding one more level of fear under the fear he already has is just not helpful. It just gets in the way. So your example, if he's um, trying to learn a new trick on a skateboard, if he has the attitude, I'll never get this trick right. I'll probably fall and hurt myself. I just can't do this very well. Other people are much better at it than I am, so on. If it's if his attitude is very negative, that will make it harder for him to do the trick. Because though he's not powerful, all of that accumulated negativity just will make it more difficult. If he says, well, I'm not very good at this, but I'm going to try it until I get it. You see, that's a positive attitude. I'm going to work on it, and I'll just work it. If it takes me a long time, that's okay. I'm just going to work on this one one little skill at a time until I eventually master it, and I will eventually master it. And if I get hurt, well, I'll get fixed. It's not that I'm not going to get that hurt. It's not that big a deal. So let's just do it and see what happens. That's a very positive attitude, and that person will learn the trick much more quickly. See, the, the problem is when you're fearful, you're not balanced. You're not, um, <coughs> shall I say, you're not as coordinating. Fear makes you stiff. Fear makes you so you don't, you have very long reaction times. Fear makes you not very uh, 
athletic, that makes you not so coordinated. So the more fearful you are, the clumsier you are about doing something. That's why, you know, if you're fearful, it'll take you a lot longer. You'll just have to work through that fear. So if you're terribly fearful, if you're just petrified of uh, of uh, not being able to do this trick or falling or hurting yourself, then you best go find some other sport or some other thing to do. If it terrifies you, then just leave it alone. You're not ready yet. Go do something else that doesn't terrify you. Or take the challenge and get over it. Let the fear go. Assume the worst. Well, what's the worst? Well, I could flip up in the air and land on my back, you know, in the sand or wherever this practice place is, or even on the concrete. And how bad would that be? Well, I'd better put on pads. I'd better wear a helmet. I'd better do all those other things because that might, you know, that might be the, the, the case. So you prepare and then you just go do it with the idea that eventually you'll succeed. And then eventually you will. But if you believe you'll never succeed, then you probably won't unless you can change that attitude. So I'd say, don't worry about it, young man. Uh, uh, you're not going to change reality that much that it's going to come and haunt you. But if you are continually negative, if you're full of fear and your whole, you know, all your waking hours are full of fear, even your dreams are full of fear, then that will in the long run modify your future to be a less fun, more problematic future. Well, the thing there to, to, to do is to work on that fear, find the fear, get rid of it. And that may take you a decade, but it's worth the decade. It's worth the time. Work on getting rid of it. And I've talked about getting rid of fear a lot of places. So you can go, you can go look that up. But if you're a very fearful person, then work on that. That is not a good way to go through life. That is not the most productive way to go. But if you're just fearful about certain things like doing new tricks on a skateboard, well, you can probably get through that. Just work through it. Pull up some courage and go do it anyway. See what happens. I think that will be very helpful. Thank you very much. Um, I was just thinking also, when you when you think negative things about yourself all the time, and you really can't stop that, what would you recommend a person to do then? Well, then I, I would think you have to start taking time out to work on that fear. Hmm. That's your perception of yourself. That is not necessarily the way you are. It's the way you see yourself. Typically, the perception is, is uh, much worse than the reality. Typically, when we go find our fears, they turn out to be paper tigers. They're not really things that are very scary. They stem from childhood incidences and things like that. And when you actually get to the bottom of it, it's not nearly as scary as it seems. So if your life is full of fear, then you need to work on that fear. Find an, find something in your life, some instance where you feel negative. And if you're full of fear, that would be almost all of the time. So just pick a negative thing. And say, all right, where does this negative thing come from? Why does this bother me? Why does this upset me? Why does this frighten me? And work it back and see. And it will take time to do this. It's not something you'll do automatically. Automatically, you'll just say, oh, well, I'm afraid of that because I am. I've always been that way. Well, that's not a good answer. You need to go back. Exactly what is that fear? Is it a fear of being hurt? Is it a fear of 
of uh, not being adequate and you just aren't as good as the other people. And, you know, if you show up badly, then that'll prove it. Um, is it a fear of, of, um, you know, of, of an insecurity of who you are? Well, look back and you'll probably find that that fear started from some minor incident back when you were between, you know, two and 10 years old. And that minor incident has kept you in this, this um, state of fear ever since. It's become a part of you. But once you understand what it is, then you, it's easier to become, uh, it's easier to let go of it, to begin to let go of it. So that'd be the first thing. Find the fear and then just let it go. Have an intent to not be that way. And when you feel yourself starting to be that way, change, stop, don't be that way. Okay, now, how do you change yourself? Well, that takes courage too. Just don't react that way. And eventually, if you keep that intent to get rid of the fear strong and active, you will. The fear will just get weaker and weaker until it goes away. Yeah, <clears throat> I think that will be very helpful. Thank you very much, Tom. You're welcome. Didi, you had one question that wasn't asked last time about collaboration in the non-physical. Would you like to ask that one? <clears throat> oh, yes. Um, yeah. Uh, yeah, that's right. Um, yeah. Uh, if you want to help a person uh, in a non-physical way, uh, when I do that, I use symbols and forms and colors that arise when thinking of her or him. Uh, I seldom address LCS and um, ask for help for the people I think about. And I'm not aware of any guides and that kind of stuff. So my question is about further understanding how it works and what else there is to explore. Uh, does each person have an appointed team of IUOCs to address who can help us support the things we try to create? Uh, or is there an online channel, channel for LCS for us all? Um, or are we as free will awareness units better off if we live our lives in a more autonomous way where we work from our own power, so to say? Uh, since we're all connected anyway. I don't know if this makes sense. Sure. It's all, all of the above. Um, if you, if you um, are ready for guides or, or helpers, and if you can use them and they're actually going to be helpful to you, then all you have to do is ask, <coughs> ask for them and you can get them. Your guides are just an interface with the, with the system. It's your own personal interface to the system. Um, you don't really need them. It's not, you won't, uh, you know, you, you won't need them very often. Uh, you can do it all on your own, which is perfectly, you know, perfectly good. You'll probably get better and understand more and learn more if you just do it on your own. But guides can be helpful, you know, sometimes. Sometimes help you see a bigger picture. They can help you see a bigger picture. But as far as the actual doing of something like healing or, or communicating, you have to do that pretty much on your own. They're not going to do that for you or, or uh, 
assist you in a big way. These are things you need to learn. And if they assist you, they're just enabling you to do them without learning. And that's not a, that's not a good thing. <clears throat> when you talk to people, interact with people from the non-physical, you've got two things that you can do. One, you can interact with them in a way that you give them information. You talk to them. You interact. Uh, you help them see a bigger picture. You help them see themselves in a more positive light. You give them hugs. You tell them you love them, that sort of thing. You can interact with people um, by sending them feelings and information. Okay, so that's one way that you interact with them. And that's a good thing to do, particularly with people, that it would be difficult to do that face-to-face. -face. Sometimes there's people that are, particularly if they're very close to you, and if there's a lot of water under that bridge, you know, a lot of, a lot of uh, uh, maybe not getting along quite so well, but you really would like to have a heart-to-heart -heart and talk with them, you can do that in the non-physical so much more easily than you can in the physical. And they will get the message. Hmm. But be very careful <clears throat> not to use that to manipulate them. Hmm. That will backfire. It has to be about them and about positive things for them, not about you. But you can have conversation that way. So that's one way that you can interact with people. The other way is to use your intent to modify their future probability, which is what people do when they heal. Now, when they heal you, they use their intent to modify the, the future probability of that person they're healing having better health, getting better, getting rid of the, the medical problem. So that um, that's the way you can interact. And if you want guides, if you say, sure, it would be handy to get a larger perspective on what's going on here, just ask the system. Say, hey, I need a little help here. I'd like somebody who can help me with my perspective. And then all you need to do is start the conversation and you should be able to get some helpers but they're not all that necessary if you do it on if you do it on your own you'll learn more more quickly as far as the doing part if it's just a matter of getting a big picture sometimes guides can help just mm -hmm. get into a meditation state and start the conversation with them the system will start sending you a data stream that will be an interaction okay yeah good that's Thank easy you. that's easy isn't it <laughs> tell me yeah, about that's it. Real, <laughs> yeah that's real easy oh. but don't be afraid don't be afraid to start out using your imagination okay, your imagination yeah. is a very powerful is a very powerful tool so if okay. you start out with this talk uh, mm -hmm. you can start out with your imagination but eventually it will turn into something else. It will turn into, uh, you'll start getting information that isn't in your, isn't in your mind, isn't in your consciousness. Okay. So people have a hard time getting started. It's yeah. the getting, the getting started is the, is the, is, is the big problem. And that's because you have expectations and fears and am I doing it right? And is this real? And that voice I heard, did I just make that up? And you go through all of these things because your intellect will do that automatically and that ruins ruins the process. So one of the ways to get by that is to just go ahead and start with your imagination. Say, all right, I'm just going to start a conversation and see where it goes. And then have a conversation without worrying about exactly who this conversation is with. Just have the conversation 
until you get to a point that the conversation starts to flow nicely. And eventually you'll see that the information that you get is outside of your own knowledge. And then you will have your relationship with your, with your guide, so to speak. It's just the consciousness system wants to help everybody grow up. So if you can use some help, then it's willing to, it's willing to talk. Now, if you're going to use that for things that really don't help you grow up or, you know, help you uh, blossom your ego, then the system will not cooperate. Sometimes the uh, interaction with the system or with a guide is verbal. Sometimes it's by, um, you know, more like by sign, you know, thing, things will happen. Uh, you'll get answers in, in uh, unusual things. You know, I don't know quite what to say. You know, it's more pictographic than than words as far as the language goes. So it, it doesn't. It's not always conversational. Uh, your conversations are always telepathic, which means you sometimes you'll get strings of words, but mostly you'll get paragraphs all at once, whole chunks of information. No, very good tip. Uh, I, I will try that. Let's see how it works out. Good. Yeah. Thank you. <laughs> mm-hmm. Okay. I see that Mr. Lopez has joined us. And Mr. Lopez, if you would like to go ahead and ask your questions. Hi, Donna. Hi, Tom and everybody. So nice to be here with you again. Welcome. Th- Thank glad you. Glad you come back. <laughs> Thank you, Tom. Yeah, okay, I have a couple of questions here. Uh, I will read them better because I wrote them, wrote them down before. <clears throat> so the, the first one is about uh, money, Tom. And I have had a lot of confusion and internal conflict about this for the most part of my life. From the Catholic teaching of you must be absolutely poor, uh, to other spiritual traditions that tend to be in favor of having the least amount of wealth possible. But up until now, I have not grasped the fundamental reason why <clears throat> and have always had this sense of guilt about money. In some of your talks, you have put the examples of wanting more money in the bank or wanting a new car as of being desires to satisfy the ego. But we all, in fact, need money to satisfy not only our basic needs for shelter, food, clothing, health, and so on, but also in practice for more than that. For example, we may have a house or a car with air conditioning. We normally have more than one pair of shoes. We have a recent TV set and not a 1970s one, and so on. So what is the boundary between uh, what we want in an egotistical way and what we consider right to have around us? How much monetary security to face incidents of life is too much security? How much comfort is too much comfort? Is that boundary related with a quantity of money or is it just related with the intention with which we have that certain amount of money? Or does it have to do with both? Okay. Yeah. Okay. I got. I got that. Uh, Let me. uh, Let me give the first the the short answer with a a a Sufi tale. Um, This is a a story that comes out of the the Sufi literature. 
And I'm going to shorten it. It actually is more like a 10-page story, but I'm going to turn it into like a one-paragraph story just to get to the bottom line quickly. And that is there was this, this master and his followers, and the master decided that it was time for him to introduce his own uh, followers to his guru, to his master. So he did that, and when he did that, he brought his followers his disciples, or whatever you want to call them, to this very lavish mansion. And his disciples wondered, where are we going? Maybe his master works here as a, you know, in the kitchen or something. What? Why are we going to this lavish place? Because they were all ascetics, which means they all lived in poverty. His, the master and his disciples all lived in, in poverty. So they walk up to the store and they're invited in. And it turns out the man who owns the house is the master's master. And he invites them in. He feeds them a, a fantastic meal. He has servants waiting on them. They sit in, in lavish, comfortable furniture. And they have a wonderful time. And after that was over, they leave. And they said, but, but master, how could your master have all this money? Isn't that? You know, non-productive. Isn't that something that just creates ego and, and belief and, and, and uh, negativity? And the master said that my master can have wealth because he cares nothing for wealth. And we need to live in poverty because we care nothing for poverty. So mm -hmm. that was the answer. Now, what that means is that living in poverty... It's just a device, a tool, okay, a strategy for making growing up easier. That's the idea behind it. When you say you can't quite get your hand around why being poor, you know, is spiritual. Well, it isn't. But the uh, particularly in the East, uh, they like to make it easier to grow up, and they have several ways to do that. One is to be poor because when you're poor, you don't have very many opportunities to exercise your ego. You don't have very many opportunities to exercise your arrogance. You only have opportunities to exercise your humility. So it makes it a little easier to grow up. But it also makes it harder to grow up in the sense that if you aren't challenged, then you don't grow there. So, yes, it's easier, but there's a ceiling on what you, how much you can grow. You can't grow up without the challenges, without somebody challenging you and giving you an opportunity to use that arrogance. Then you can trick yourself into thinking that you're very evolved because you show very little ego and you don't show much arrogance. But take that poor person and put him in an environment where he's challenged and he also hasn't learned <laughs> about arrogance and about fear and other things because he's been in a very uh, just sheltered uh, environment. Mostly in the East, uh, these religious people get alms. They get uh, handouts. That's how they live. They basically beg and people put money in their, I mean, not money, but food in their bowl, and that's how they get by. Well, that's a tough way to live, but it surely does get rid of a lot of responsibility and a lot of challenges. Another thing that is done in the East is that one becomes a hermit. You go off and live by yourself somewhere, have very little contact with the rest of the world. Well, in doing that, again, you eliminate most of your challenges 
to grow up. So it's easy to believe that you grow up very quickly because there you are living in your cave. You haven't talked to another human being in a decade and you're thinking, oh, I don't have any ego. I don't have any arrogance. I don't get upset. I don't get angry. Well, the only person there's there to get angry at is yourself. You see? So, yes, you can grow up by starting in a simpler environment where your ego and your arrogance and your fear is not triggered, is not drawn out. You see? So that's why often initiates start with poverty. They think that's the fast track. Well, I believe it's only the fast track to feeling evolved, not necessarily <laughs> to being evolved. You feel very evolved because you don't do, you don't, you don't have anger, you don't have any of these negative things going on because your life is so restricted and so simple. The point is that if you don't care for wealth, if you don't care about it, if it's just something you have, you see, then you're not attached to it. If you're not attached to it, then your ego, your fear, your beliefs are not attached to it. And if you're not attached to it, it makes no difference. So the master's master could live in opulence because he cared nothing for opulence. Therefore, it didn't make him arrogant. It didn't make him feel like he was better than anybody. It didn't make him, uh, uh, you know, feel superior because he had outgrown all those things. Whereas the master and his disciples had to live in poverty because if they had opulence, all of their fear stuff would have come out. They would be making poor choices. So that's the, that's the connection. So money's not a problem. It's only the intent you have around that money. If you have more money and that makes you better than other people or you have more stuff and that makes you superior and you kind of, you know, uh, become arrogant because of the power you have, the power that the dollars give you, then that money is causing you to de-evolve. But if you don't have that arrogance and that fear and those, you know, all that ego and you have money, then the money is irrelevant. Matter of fact, the money actually is helpful because you can help other people with that money. You can use that money to be helpful to others. Where you see need, you're very generous. So that's, that's kind of the way it is. So don't feel guilty about having stuff or having money or being successful. There's no guilt there. Matter of fact, there's more challenge. It's harder to not have big ego. It's harder to uh, not be arrogant if you're also wealthy. That wealth can bring out the arrogance in people that otherwise didn't act arrogant. So <clears throat> that's the connection between the money and the growing up. So money is not an evil thing or a thing that makes you less, um, you know, gives you a, a lower quality of consciousness. It's your attitude toward that money. It's how you relate to that money. It's your intent. What does it do to you? Okay. If it doesn't bring out any, if it doesn't bring out any fear, then that you have the money is not relevant to your growth, but is relevant to the extent of how much you can help others. So in that sense, having those resources is a good thing because you can apply them to being more helpful. But you also have to understand that just giving people money is often not helpful. 
it just makes you an enabler sometimes. You know, if you continually uh, give a drug addict money, you just are enabling him to continue being a drug addict. So just giving people things often is not the best way to help them. Yeah. So, okay. so you have to look at the, you have to look at the long term of how can you help people? How can you help create an environment where they're more secure? So that's the answer to that one. Okay. Probably not the answer you expected. Well, no, but thank you very much, Tom, because for the first time it's a, a lot clearer to me. It makes a lot more sense and it's a, uh, well, it, it's, a, it's a real explanation because the, the problem I had before is that nobody was really explaining it like, like you just did. So yeah, thank you very much for that, Tom. Makes sense. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, <clears throat> I don't know, Don, is it okay if I go on with the next question or? <clears throat> okay. Yeah. So, uh, this is, this is, uh, related with an experience, an internal experience, Tom. And, uh, let's say that someone has had, uh, out of nowhere <coughs> spontaneous glimpses or momentary lapses of what he or she perceives as a state of no fear with great joy, a sense of goodwill, perhaps love for everything and everyone, just witnessing something divine like inside and outside him or her, as if that thing were the perfect, simple and powerful source of everything that is manifested afterwards, and the person perceives it inside and outside of himself, not directly related with the space or time, albeit for a moment. It feels like mere existence is perfect and unbounded. There is also a clear clarity, a clear certainty, excuse me, that this is the state that nature has created for any sentient being to be in and act from. This certainty doesn't seem deceptive whatsoever. It seems so clear, even obvious. Is this kind of a state what we are looking for? And if so, how can we sustain it and, and, for, for longer or, or permanently and not being sucked, sucked back by, by our peer PMR, uh, per perception, perspective of physicality and ego and fear. Okay. That experience is one that many people have. And that's the experience of kind of being one with the larger conscious system, being connected to everything. Um, some percent of people who have near-death experiences will experience that experience. You can experience it just from a meditation if you have the intent to experience the larger consciousness system. And it's a usually it's a life-changing experience. It uh, makes you feel in a very fundamental way that you are love, that you are a part of the whole, that you are part of everything, every blade of grass, every leaf on a tree, Every rock, you're a part of all of it. And it is such an inclusive, loving, caring, um, belonging kind of an experience that it often changes people's attitudes. It's a life changer. But it is just an experience. It's showing you your potential. This is what you could grow up to be. This is the goal you have is to become this. So the experience lets you jump ahead, if you will, lets you see 
you know, what the goal is. It lets you see what a low entropy consciousness feels like, the way you are in interact with things. So that gives you incentive to learn, to grow, you know, to, to become more. So that's the thing. It's It's mainly the reason you get that experience is because the system is using that as a carrot to help you move forward, to help you grow. It says, wow, that's fantastic. I'd like to be able to be there all the time, to be that developed. And it gets you fired up to, to grow up. But it's just an experience. And just having the experience doesn't really make you grow up very much. You're just having an experience, a magnificent experience, but it's just an experience. You still have to change yourself in order to grow. In other words, that experience tends to change you in an intellectual and sometimes even an emotional sense, but it doesn't help you grow up very much. You still have to make the good choices on your own. So you really don't want to stay with that experience until you do earn it, until that is an authentic expression of you. Then it's yours permanently. Then you live that way. But until then, you need to work on becoming that. So the idea is when you have that experience, it's very good to hang on to it for as long as you can. Maybe a day, maybe two or three days, maybe a week or so. Just kind of hang on to that experience. But eventually it's going to fade because it's not really you. You haven't grown up that much yet. But that's not a bad thing. It's there for you now to say, okay, I see where I'm going. Now all I have to do is get there. So that's really what it's for. It's an incentive. It gives you a, an idea of what it is you're working toward, that state of being where you are love. You are connected to everything. You're one with the larger consciousness system. That's kind of where you're headed. So you want to come back here eventually. And you want to get to work on growing up. You don't want to just hang out in that state all the time because it's not really your state. It's just something that's been given to you to experience the end game. Okay. Okay, Tom. And, and the way to become that would be, of course, uh, getting rid of fear, beliefs, and right. day by day doing the right choices or striving to do the right choices, right? Yes, which is the thing you're Maybe. supposed to be doing all the time anyway. <laughs> so, <laughs> yes, that is that is the thing to, to do about that. So now you've, you've got the incentive to grow up. You see where you're going. That gives you a lot more energy toward getting it done. All right. Okay, thank you. Thank you very much, Tom. Mm -hmm. Great. Now, Mao, you had a couple of extra questions, and oh. since you are present here, we always mm -hmm. give we always give preference to those who are present. So you can go ahead and ask those other two questions. Oh, oh, thank you, thank you, Donna. <laughs> <right>. Great, great. <laughs> um, okay, uh, this this is not uh, more like a theoretical question, just to understand a little bit more about the mechanics of uh, consciousness and um, PMR. Uh, Tom, g given the, the process fractal nature of the larger consciousness system and knowing that evolution in our PMR have been driven by the survival of the fittest and the egoistic genes, 
how is that consciousness evolves by exactly the opposite, caring about others, loving and giving? Why does this uh, distinction appear in the in the process? I don't know if it was kind of clear. <laughs> yeah, I, I understand that. Well, it's because yeah. there are two different processes going on. One is physical evolution. That is evolution in the in the simulation. Okay, this physical reality is a simulation. That's why we call it a virtual reality. And in this simulation, we have a rule set that drives all the interactions. According to this rule set, thing that lets us win this game, this thing that lets us um, survive, is survival and procreation. Those are the two constraints that you have to work with. If you can survive and, and procreate, then you as a species, you the species will be able to continue. Otherwise, you'll become uh, extinct. So those are the criteria for evolution, survival, and <clears throat> procreation. Basic criteria in our evolution. Now, in consciousness, that's not the criteria for evolution. In consciousness, evolution is about reducing entropy. Reducing entropy is about cooperation, caring. Uh, you know, uh, compassion, trying to optimize interactions with other people. That's what, that's the condition. That's the, uh, you know, that's the thing you have to meet in order to evolve in consciousness. So they're just two different evolutionary systems. One's inside the simulation, according to the rule set, and the other one is in consciousness. And they have different criteria that you have to meet in order to evolve. So one, we're talking about physical evolution. The other, we're talking about consciousness evolution. Completely different systems. <clears throat> okay, Tom. And do, do, are we supposed to, to favor both? For example, in PMR, the uh, um, survival of the yeah. fittest? Of course, in our yeah. modern society, it's not that, that extreme. But in principle... Exactly. Yeah, exactly. It's not that extreme. And as we all grow up, it's going to get less and less and less extreme. That's the point. We're going to make that uh, that survival and procreation something that is not so terrible. It's not so hard. Uh, it, it's not, uh, you know, it, it's not, it doesn't come with the, with the fear that it used to. So that's part of our evolution there. See, we're consciousness in this virtual reality. So, yes, we have to do both. We are physically evolving. You know, if we look ahead a million years from now, humans may not look like us at all. They may be totally different kind of creature. That's mm -hmm. a lot of time. We will probably evolve to whatever environment we create. And we may not look like this or think like this. A human being might evolve to be something different than it is now. So that's just the evolution that keeps on going. A system changes. Uh, according to whether his changes help him survive and procreate. At the same time, we're growing up with in our consciousness to become love. And those two interact with each other. So the more we become love, then the less, the less uh, hardship and fear and, and uh, whatever we have around surviving and procreation. That starts to become easier and easier and easier because we, we're growing up with our consciousness. So the two inter interplay, and the the criteria for the physical evolution give us challenges see, that we have to meet to grow up the consciousness. 
So the two evolve together. The physical just evolves because time goes by and environments change, and the consciousness evolves by making better choices. Mm-hmm. Okay, so the, there could be times in which we have to decide, for example, in extreme situations uh, about uh, I have to decide, uh, let's say, for example, in self-defense, the uh, my survival, my physical survival. Um, probably instead of deciding, mm, I don't know, like, uh, mm, like saying, well, uh, I'm, I'm not going to use uh, violence, for example, to defend myself or to defend someone, uh, because that's contrary to sharing and loving and caring. Uh, I mean, we may face those kind of contradictions. Yeah. In, yes, in we do. And, yeah, and here's how you deal with those. You look at the long-term entropy change. So you're in a situation where... Um, in order to protect yourself or somebody else, or maybe several somebody else's, you will have to use violence. Okay, and your choice is: Do I use that violence, or do I just, you know, am I uh, a nonviolent, you know, a, a person that's completely nonviolent? Well, mm-hmm. each choice will change entropy. If you look at just the entropy of you doing something violent, well, that may be uh, a little lower entropy just because you've made the nonviolent choice. On the other hand, if you choose not to defend yourself or others, and that just feeds the violence in that frame. In other words, the violence is going to get worse. It's not going to stop with just you. It's going to then go on to others and others and others. And by you putting an end to it here with your violence, you will make the entropy in the long term much lower in the physical world. See, so you have to look at okay, you get a little bit of a lower, a lower entropy for the nonviolent choice, perhaps, but you're going to get a much bigger entropy reduction for the violent choice to oppose somebody that's just wantonly killing people, but you have the opportunity to stop them. In that case, you should be violent. You should stop them because that's the low entropy choice. So we always make the long-term low entropy choice. We do the best we can as far as figuring out what that is, and then we do it. But the MBT philosophy is not a philosophy of nonviolence. There are times to push back. There are times that violence is the right answer because it will help reduce long-term uh, entropy. Okay, And... and <clears throat> There's other times that that's not the case. Okay? There's other times where violence just adds more, you know, gasoline to the fire, just makes everything worse. Mm-hmm. Well, and that's a case to be nonviolent. So there's a time to turn the other cheek and there's a time to fight back. It just, you have to come to the conclusion, which time is it in this situation and see if uh, the, the general, you know, which, which choice is the better choice. Sometimes the choice is to is to fight, is to be violent. You need to, particularly in the protection of others that uh, cannot protect themselves, particularly if that other person that's that's causing the problem will go on to, you know, do the same thing to lots of other people, and you have an opportunity to stop them. So it's in many cases, you not only are uh, able to be violent, but sometimes 
it's the only ethical thing to do, to step in and protect someone. That is the right thing to do. Anything else would be the wrong thing to do. So it's situational. It just depends. You can't have one one thing that covers all cases. You have to look at it case by case, and just like every other choice you make, you always try to pick the low entropy long-term choice. Not the low entropy short-term, but the low entropy long-term choice. What's the effect this is going to have on people over the next, you know, depends on the situation, you know, the next years or the next days or the next hours, whatever long-term happens to be, you know, in your particular situation. So it's not a a self-centered thing. It's not about you. It's not about, well, how can I live a day longer? It's about what's the, what is the way that I can make a choice that lowers the entropy the most? That's the, that's the key thing. And then you can do that. And if it turns out that you made a poor decision, then you learn from it. That helps you grow up. If it turns out you made a good decision, then you can go celebrate. That was good. You helped yourself and other people. So that's the way to look at it. It depends. Thank you very much, Tom. Thank you. You're welcome. Great. (laughs) Yeah, you'll find that very seldom is there anything that one size fits all. You know, here's, you always do this, you know, no matter what. That hardly ever works that way. Typically, it's, it's very situational dependent because it's about your intent, your intent to lower entropy. You see, morality is not something that's fixed. These acts are moral and those acts aren't. Morality is, is tied to your intent, not to your actions. So if your intent is that you're going to lower entropy, you're going to, you know, the, the lower entropy you do by saving a, a whole lot of people is a big gain for the system. So you're going to fight instead of turning the other cheek. Well, that's your choice. We make our best choice and then we learn from it. Yeah. Yeah. The important thing being Tom, also the intent, because the action could be wrong and, and we will learn from it. But the intent, at least, was the right one. Right. Right. Intent okay. has to be the right one. And this is not just an intellectual intent. This is a, <coughs> this is a, a being level intent. Sometimes our intellect can play tricks on us. We can say something like, well, I know how to improve the world. I can go and uh, shoot everybody that disagrees with me. That would improve the world a whole lot. You say, now you're saying, well, my intent was to improve the world. So, you know, I just should go do that. But no, that's an intellectual intent. That's really based on arrogance, on fear, on, you know, very uh, low quality. And that, that is not, that does not qualify as a, as a uh, intention to lower entropy. That's an intention to feed ego and to feed arrogance. So it has to be a being level intent, something that the system, something that the larger conscious system would look at and say, yep, this path is the one that gives you the lowest overall entropy. That's the path you're looking for. Okay. That's why you never know for sure. You have to guess. And that's why you learn from your mistakes, because you don't always guess right. But you make your best guess, and then you go do it, then you learn whatever lessons there are to learn. All right. Okay. Thank you, Tom. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Thank you, Mal. Um, Nicholas is present here, but he is listening in. So I will ask his question. He is listening in only. And his question is, 
what is the worst substance, nicotine or caffeine, for reaching the consciousness state? Nicotine or caffeine, which is the worst? That's They're both not very good. You know, I don't know that I could say that one is you know, worse than the other. It depends on how much you abuse either one. You know, if you're a, you drink, you know, 10 cups of coffee, you know, every morning, that's probably a pretty serious caffeine addiction and it will probably affect your, your mind quite a bit. But if you smoke, um, you know, three packs of cigarettes every morning, <laughs> that's also a pretty serious addiction and will probably affect your consciousness quite a bit. But there's all kinds of, there's a lot of area in there. And I see both of them as being about equivalent as far as what they what they do to you, how they affect your life, how they make your choices. Or there's a lot of things other than just the drug addiction. There's things that, um, you know, other things that come into play, like with smoking. You also come into play with the way you interact with other people. If you're a smoker, then it's not just about you and the drug that you inhale affecting your your consciousness, it's also about the choices you make in protecting other people from the secondhand smoke that you produce. You know, are you aware of that? Do you make sure that you only smoke when you're alone someplace that you won't uh, bother other people who may be sensitive or may be allergic? Well, if you just don't care about them, say, well, I have a right to smoke. And, you know, if they that's the way they are, then they just have to deal with it. Well, now that's arrogance. You see, so smoking it's not in both of these cases. It's not just necessarily the drug itself. It's it's the whole complete thing and how it affects your interactions with people. Um, if you're on coffee, you tend to get a little hyper if you drink a whole lot of it, and you may say a lot of things that you wish you hadn't if you'd taken a little more time to think about them. But because you're so buzzed up, you just blurt stuff out and, and uh, say things without considering them, uh, or you overrun other people because they're not as hopped up as you are and you just tend to run right over them as far as the conversation goes. So you see, it's not just the drug. It's how that drug changes your interactions. Being addicted to a drug is generally just dysfunctional. So I can't say one is a better or worse drug than the other. Either one could be terrible depending on the, the amount you abuse it, depending on how it makes you interact with other people. And either one could be mostly benign if you uh, didn't abuse it so much and you had one cup of coffee in a day and that was it. Or you smoked, you know, one cigarette a day and that was it. And you do that very carefully in a place that it won't bother anybody else. Then it's then mostly just about you. And what does the drug addiction do to your choices? Oh, I'm sorry, I can't go that way because... There's no coffee in that direction, so we're going to have to change and go some other way, you see. So now that's affecting you. Or I can't smoke in that venue, so we can't go there. We'll have to do something else. It affects your choices as well as the drug interaction. So that's the key.